Well, welcome here today. My privilege to lead and to share in the same morning. So I'm, I'm kind of echoing up here a little bit, though. Well, we have had eight great weeks exploring different ways that family matters in this series, this current series we've been in. We've looked at God's heart for our own families. Uh, we've looked at what it means to be part of God's family as followers of Jesus who've been adopted in to God's first family. We've covered a lot of ground. We've covered everything from family baggage. Wasn't that fun? Yes, parenting we've talked about. We've, we've talked about uh, discipleship that's helping other people follow Jesus. We've talked about evangelism that's sharing with people the good news about Jesus, helping them find Jesus. And remember, we learned those four circles, and I know lots of you are still practicing them. And just can I side note this? If you've had an experience of sharing with someone, I know some of you already have because you've told me, sharing with someone those four circles to explain the big story, please let me know. I'd love to know how that went for you. We've explored uh, things about the nature of who God is and, and what he's up to and how he works through messy families. I hope it's been an inspiring and uh, helpful series for you. Today, we're going to close the series, and we're going to do that by gathering around the family table. But in honor of the arrival of the much-anticipated movie sequel, the movie sequel that I know many teenagers have quite literally been waiting their whole lives to see. What movie am I talking about? Incredibles 2. That's right. In honor of its recent launch, I thought I'd start off our mealtime series today by looking in the mealtime of Bob and Helen Parr. Children Violet, Dashiell, and Jack-Jack. Here we go. Bites, Dash. Yikes. Bob, could you help the carnivore cut his meat? Ow. Dash, you have something you want to tell your father about school? Uh, um, well, we dissected a frog. Dash got sent to the office again. Good, good. No, Bob, that's bad. What? Dash got sent to the office again. What? What for? Nothing. He put a tack on the teacher's chair during class. Nobody saw me. I could barely see it on the tape. They caught you on tape and you still got away with it? Whoa. You must have been booking. How fast do you think you were Bob, going? We are not encouraging this. I'm not encouraging. I'm just asking how fast you Honey! Right. First a car, now I gotta pay to fix a tape. The car? What happened to the car? Here, I'm getting a new plate. <clears throat> so, how about you, Vi? How was school? Nothing to report. You've hardly touched your food. I'm not hungry for meatloaf. Well, it is leftover night. We have steak, pasta. What are you hungry for? Tony Ranger. Shut up. Well, you are. I said shut up, you little insect. Well, she is. Do not shout at the table. Honey? Kids, listen to your mother. <laughs> She'd eat if we were having Tony loaf. Fact it! Oh, 
Simon J. Palladino, longtime advocate of superhero rights, is missing. Gazer beam. Hey, Jack, Jack. Ice of you to drop by. Huh? Never heard that one before. Whoa! <laughs> well, even if your family meals look a little bit like that from time to time, family meals are one of the most important events of family life. And yes, Things can get a little crazy. There can be fights among siblings. There can be meltdowns. And there will be a few leftover nights. But one thing is sure. Family meals matter. Did you know that? Research is as solid on this as Aunt Bertha's pound cake. Listen to this. Families that eat together, they do better all together. Families, no matter what configuration, blended, foster, um, single-parent families, two-parent families, grandparents taking care of, whatever. Families who eat together regularly have stronger relationships with each other. Now, it's not that every family meal is this deep, rich, meaningful conversation about world events or the children are reciting their vocabulary. It's not like that, of course. But it's by prioritizing the meal, families have a regular time to connect with each other. They catch up. They share stories. They ask questions. They put down the phone. They simply talk. When regular meals are shared four to five times a week without fail, relationships get stronger. And some of you know this is true from your own personal experience. Kids who live in families who eat regularly together actually eat healthier. We know this is true, right? Because you ever seen a kid try to cook for themselves? You know what they pick, right? Yeah. But they eat healthier. They eat more balanced meals when they're in families. They eat regular. It makes them more healthy physically, which then affects every other area of their lives. And yes, even their grades. Their grades get better. Studies have shown a significant link between regular family meals and academic performance. Uh, Teens who have between five to seven family dinners per week reported they were twice as likely to report receiving A's and B's at school as teens who were in homes where they ate less than three dinners per week. And speaking of teenagers, yes, speaking to you teens who maybe don't always like to linger over the family meal as much as your parents would like, but teens who have regular family meals report being healthier mentally and emotionally than those who don't. And what's more, they're more likely to be socially adjusted, have good manners and communication skills. And this is from a study that involved over 5,000 teens. Studies have shown that adults are better off as well. Not only are you better off financially and physically because you eat better at home, and let's be honest, it's way cheaper, they also experience a reduction in stress when they regularly sit down for meals with the family. One study showed that moms who eat regular meals with their families were less stressed and happier than those who didn't. Now, I know some of your moms right now are looking skeptical at me. It's because someone needs to just take you out for a meal, right? Would someone please do that? Should, should I get a hands raised for all the moms who just want to go out for a meal? Because they'd be a lot happier doing that. But, but on the whole, this is true, because family meals matter. And with only about half Canadian families 
sitting down for regular meals, five meals a week together, sharing meals together, getting that in our lives is actually one of the greatest things we can do to foster stronger relationships in our families while at the same time getting healthier physically, mentally, and financially. So I want to start right off being super practical today. I know that some of us eating regular meals together is like a no-brainer, a regular thing. It's part of our habit, part of our life. And you're kind of wondering, like, what's the big deal? Doesn't everyone do that? No, they don't. For many others, busyness and sports and music, uh, music lessons and work, and, and frankly, just maybe that just wasn't part of life, wasn't the habit that was formed. These things have crowded out regular mealtimes. And I just want to say that being more intentional, more regular with family meals represents a great choice for a healthier family. And this isn't a guilt thing. It's not a heavy, uh, you know, it's just a solid, healthy step that you can take. So for some of us where that habit isn't in place, I want to encourage you to start where you're at. To, to examine, like, how many family meals are we having and, and what would it look like to increase that? Don't go from one to six and find, you know, you're frustrated and you're angry and, you're, you know, that doesn't work. But rather, decide where are we at now as a family? How many times are we having these meals, regular connections, or, you know, whether it's supper or whether it's lunches or breakfast, whatever? And what can we do to, to, to increase that? Maybe the current rhythm of your life seems impossible. I was talking to Joanne Ewing about this, and she shared a story of a family that she knew where they realized their life was, they're just driving kids everywhere all the time. Anyone? Yes. And, 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 but they realized they, about four days a week, all of them were in the same vehicle for about 45 minutes. Now, meals at home were hard, but rather than just you know, hitting the drive-through or whatever, they decided, hey, let's, let's make the most of this. So they, they'd pack a picnic lunch, and in those times when they were all together in the van, they would kind of build it in so they could stop somewhere at a park and have a picnic together. And instead of it just being a downer and making a meal impossible, it actually became a memory-making event for their lives. And for those of us who have that regular habit, don't look down on those who don't. Help us. Help them. Open up your family table. Share how this has been part of your life. Because we all know that it's not as simple as making just a calendar adjustment, is it? There's a lot that goes in there. And sometimes we haven't learned the skills that are needed to, 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 to maybe meal plan or to, to, to cook in healthy ways or to prepare in advance. Or, you know, these can take skills that some of us take for granted. And in a church like ours, we've got a lot to share with each other as we figure that out. And, uh, you know, as we maybe try to incorporate more regular, healthy meals in regular times of eating together into our lives, which can make a huge difference. But, but speaking of opening up your tables... There's many of us who aren't in a particular family unit. Maybe we're alone. Or maybe a spouse or family members work away a lot, and so we find ourselves alone a lot. Or maybe due to just difficult life situations, we just aren't, you know, the setting isn't right, the context isn't right, we can't just sit down with our family. Well, we, as the family of God first, which we've explored in this series quite a bit, we need to practice extending our family table, our family meal, to include other brothers and sisters. Even, yes, other families, but other members of the church family to join us. Because eating together has always been a key way that we share in God's family life together. Just as we said earlier, families that eat together do better all together. That's true of the church life as well. I grew up in a church family that loved to eat, loved to eat together. They were always inviting people over, and we were always eating in the church basement. And I, I was just remembering the other day with, with distinct fondness, much to, to Neil's chagrin, I was remembering those jello things. 
You know, you remember the jello, uh, the jello salads where the, the bananas would be floating in them? Or better yet, shredded carrots? Anyone? Some of you are just happy that era has passed. I'm kind of hoping for a resurgence. <laughs> Listen, eating together was how Jesus made God's kingdom known and available to people. Men and women and children would come, often people who were regularly excluded from religious life or from the spiritual inner circle, they would come to Jesus and they would be welcomed at the table. And eating together with Jesus was in itself an experience of the good news, an experience of what God was doing in the world to make it right. Eating together was a normal practice for the early followers of Jesus. In the book of Acts, which is this little history book, it's the fifth book of the New Testament, and it catalogs some of the early history as as the resurrection of Jesus has happened and the people of God have received the Holy Spirit. And now they fan out into the known Roman Empire, making known what Jesus has done, making known that he's alive, and people are becoming followers of him. Well, these early followers in this story of Acts were told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We're told that they would meet every day in the temple. So a larger gathering of people where they would worship. And then they would also break bread in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Did you hear that? Eating together was part of their life together as the new family of God. And what's more, did you catch the last line? It was also, this eating together, was also the context uh, that that people were, were, were being made new members of the family, this context of devotion and worship and prayer and eating together. These new members of the family were experiencing this new community. Not only do Christians share life over a meal, but they share the life of Jesus with others over a meal. So to use the formal language we use sometimes, this eating together was a context where both evangelism was happening, helping people find Jesus, and discipleship was happening, helping people follow Jesus in the context of this meal. So let me touch on another practical application. This is pretty easy, actually. Let's eat together. Wasn't it great last Sunday, those of you who are at the park, Centennial Park, to just eat together to, to worship together, but to then eat together. I love seeing everyone drifting around, passing babies, holding them under the sprinkler, doing whatever, you know, enjoying each other, meeting new folks, and just lingering together. It was really a great time. But I encourage us to do that. To, to, I, know, I know many of you do this a lot, but others, we hold back to, to encourage each other to, to let's, eat, let's eat together. Let's eat in our homes or maybe local restaurants, maybe out for a picnic or, or a barbecue. Let's make that. You don't need to have that arranged just to, to be active about that and say, let's, let's eat together more. In the fall, we'll be launching small groups in our community. It's part of the way we believe as we move forward that we need to help people find and follow Jesus. We need to gather in this large setting to worship and receive his word and welcome others in. But we also need to gather in smaller groups. And I hope that in small groups, eating together will become a normal, regular part of how we gather. This morning, though, we're going to share around this special meal, not a, not a potluck or a barbecue, but a meal provided by Jesus himself, communion, also called the Lord's Supper or called Eucharist, the Eucharist. It's a central way that Christians have been gathering 
Around this table for over 20 centuries, Christians have been remembering, celebrating, and receiving God's grace for us. This family meal really matters. And because of that, I thought I'd take an opportunity. We, we often um, just flow right into communion with, with not too much explanation. I, I thought I'd take an opportunity today to slow things down a little bit around this family meal and clear up some potential misunderstandings about communion. I'm sure I won't clear them all up, but I want to clear up some of them. Because we're from a variety of backgrounds. Some of us are from a lot of different church backgrounds, a lot of different traditions and experiences. Some of us are from backgrounds that just didn't have church. And communion was something we saw, you know, on The Godfather or something. And we just, you know, it's sort of something we'd see in movies or our friends did it. And we, we, we don't really know much about it. Some of us have a hybrid of sorts. And some of us have just been exploring faith. And we're working to understand what is going on as we gather. What is even going on here today around communion? Others of us have some pretty entrenched ideas about communion, and some of those are probably good, and some of those might need to be challenged. But all of us can use a refresher on what we're doing when we come to the table and receive these gifts from Jesus. So to help us out, I'm going to quickly go through 10 common myths and misconceptions about communion. I'm going to go as fast as I can physically talk. Well, okay, not quite as fast. Here we are. The first one is only the holy. Only the holy. In other words, communion is for people who've got it all together, right? Like you can look back in your week and say, I have done nothing wrong this week. And that's who communion's for. And so sometimes you can think, well, I can't go take communion because I, you know, I yelled at my kids this morning before I even got here. Or I've been struggling with this particular struggle or I've got this thing I'm working through and, and my life's such a mess. I can't come to communion because that's for the holy. Let me tell you, that is just not true. This table is for the sinners. This table is for people who are saying, I am messed up. I need Jesus. I am working it through. I am trying to figure it out. I fell 16 times since Wednesday. I need Jesus. Communion is for sinners. Think of it as the kind of meal that Jesus hosted all the time, where people would gather around him, messed up people, people who were far away from the life God even desired for them, but they come in close and Jesus says, would you sit down and eat with me? It's for sinners. Second, it's just tradition. Now, in the sense that it's just a dead ritual, it's just something, you know, it's kind of done. It's not really significant. It's just been something repeated over and over again. Now listen, taking communion, participating in the Eucharist is an important part of our tradition, of our history. Much like anything that's worth doing, anything that's important in your life, you build patterns and, and maybe traditions to, to, to help you keep doing those things, even or maybe especially in those times where you don't want to do them anymore. So you, you, you put in some, some things to help you remember. And rituals and traditions can do that. But it's so much more than that. Communion, coming to the table, is a, is a real living act of, of fellowship with Jesus, of friendship with him, which he's invited us to do as, as often as we meet, with regularity in our gatherings as Christians. So it is tradition in one sense, but it's not just tradition. It's not just some dead ritual. Third, we need to choose wisely. Now, the idea behind this myth is that the drink or the bread is something magical. 
Like, it doesn't matter kind of what's going on. If I can just get a hold of that drink uh, and drink it, then everything's going to be okay. That somehow it's, it's, just, it's just something that I, I can do and, and whatever troubles I'm in or whatever thing I'm persisting on doing or whatever sin is amped up in my life or whatever trauma is going on, that somehow if I can just drink and eat, everything will be okay. Well, that is not true. And in fact, this myth or misconception of communion, the problem is, there's probably a few problems, but one of them is that it locates the faith in the stuff, not in Jesus. It places the faith in the bread and juice, not in the one who loves you, the one who calls you, the one who has purposed you. And and that's the bigness. The reality is when you choose to take communion, you are choosing wisely because you are trusting Jesus, not the juice. You're coming to him. Number four, very common. If you ain't crying, you ain't trying. Now, I... I've seen this one a lot, and this has been true in people, particularly from certain persuasions within the Christian world, where communion has got to be a funeral dirge. Like, if you aren't, like, ready to, you know, throw yourself on the floor weeping by the time you're done, it hasn't been done right. Well, communion may at times be a solemn or even a sorrowful affair, particularly if we're grappling with something that's going on in our lives. Maybe a particular wound that Jesus is wanting to heal, or a particular sin pattern that, that, that we need. It has to be broken. It has to change. Some, so, sometimes it can even be sorrowful because as we reflect, we, we can be really struck by the price that Jesus paid for us to be restored to God. And so there can be real sorrow in that. And I, I don't want to take away from any of that. But by no means does this mean that communion always needs to be set to funeral music. Communion can be just as celebratory, the kind of party atmosphere that, you know, when people celebrate like their favorite team winning the Stanley Cup. They don't set funeral music to that. How wrong would that be? Well, guess what? What are we celebrating at communion? The victory of Jesus over sin and death. Whoa! This should be like, you know, streamers and lights and... Party on, you know? Well, I'll stop there. It should be a party. Fifth one is that communion is my God time. This also is quite common. This idea that communion is just between me and God. It's just this private interior affair where I just actually, I actually want to deliberately shut out the fact that I'm in a room full of people. Boy, I wish they wouldn't hear. Man, that guy is sniffling over there. I just, ah. Her, I can smell her perfume from here. Oh, Lord Jesus, help me just ignore the fact that I'm in a room full of people. That is not what communion is about. It's not just between you and God. And in fact, whoever dreamed up that way of reading the Bible wasn't reading the full text about communion, didn't understand what Jesus was doing when he hung on the cross. Communion was and always is about a relationship with God and with each other simultaneously around this shared table. We come together at the table. We sit together at the meal. 
this act of coming together and sitting together and eating together, whether it is in our homes or at a restaurant or at a barbecue or at communion, that act of being together is a powerful demonstration that when Jesus hung on the cross, he did not hang there only to make us one with God. He hung there to make us one with each other, to make us one new humanity, one new big family. That that's actually the whole story of what God is up to. Now, I'm going to take a little longer with this myth because of how common this perspective is. In the famous passage in the first letter to the Corinthians, um, it's where the Apostle Paul provides the most direct teaching we have on communion. That church had forgotten just this. And they had begun to celebrate communion in the exclusion of others, to the exclusion of others. And Paul says, that is destructive to the family of God. In fact, he says, because of what you're doing, the thing you're doing, you think it's the Lord's Supper. It's not even the Lord's Supper anymore. I'm going to read a little bit from 1 Corinthians 11. It's the part we, we don't normally read this whole passage when we take communion. We, we normally read the part that says, you know, for I received what I passed on, you know, all that stuff. We will read it. But I'm going to read the portion just before that so you see the larger context. Here it is. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. How would you like to get that letter from your pastor, your founding pastor? Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Now listen to this next line with sarcasm, because that's what Paul's intending. He says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Hear Paul's concern here? He's speaking to a, a particular context and there's a particular mistreatment. But his concern is how they've forgotten that the communion table is about the family. And they're mistreating others as a result. And as a result, they're destroying the very church that this meal was designed to strengthen. However, because Christians have often read their Bibles individualistically, which we've talked about at different times, they've ignored this larger community context. Paul, later, when he gives this warning not to take communion in an unworthy manner, lest you be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, they've interpreted that as some internal privatized thing. Like, I've got to get all my theology right. I've got to believe all the right things. I better have all the right you know, lined up, or else I'm somehow going to take it and then be damned as I take it. Rather than reading it in this larger context where Paul is critiquing this church for not living in right relationship with others. And as a result, their communion is faulty. No, while communion is always, always personal, it is never private. And so Paul, in his, at the end now, I'm jumping over the passage we will read. Uh, Paul, at the end, in his concluding comments of communion, he simply says this, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Biblical warrant for barbecue and communion. 
It sounds like it's not just a private thing to me. Okay, I'll keep going. So number six is that communion is purely optional. In other words, we can just kind of take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter. Not that big deal. Well, actually, Jesus made it quite clear. He said, make this a regular part of your gatherings. Remember me. Keep focused. Keep oriented. Proclaim what I've done. Do this in this simple act, this everyday act of eating and drinking. And Christians have done that. They've done this since Jesus told them to. Like baptism, communion is not something Christians just going to take or leave however they like. It's actually a powerful means of grace in our lives, and Jesus commanded us to do it. Number seven, graduate degree required. In other words, communion is something you've got to fully understand. I often encounter this with baptism, too. Communion is something you have to fully understand before you do it because you know what? It could be dangerous if you don't fully understand what you're doing. It could be dangerous. You could be in trouble. This is not true. Much like the sinners who gathered around Jesus or these new believers who were added to the family of God, fully understanding what Jesus had done and all the ins and outs of the theology is not a requirement. I mean, that's a lifetime of learning and study, of being around the table. And very few of us, if that was the, the, you know, the requirements, very few of us would, would qualify. I think God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to us at the communion table. And he says this. He says in Isaiah 55, he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you have no money? Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor, on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. So what level of spirituality is required for communion? You've got to be thirsty. You've got to be hungry. You've got to just be willing to receive. Understanding what's happening as we come to the table, that will grow as we receive from the hand of Jesus. Now the opposite myth, number eight, is that not a graduate degree. In fact, any dummy will do. You don't really need to know anything. In fact, you don't need to think anything. Just get in line, buddy. Now, it's sort of related to the, the dead tradition one earlier as well, but this one in particular says faith doesn't really matter. Well, actually, it does. In communion, we're receiving grace from Jesus himself. And so there are some basics. No, you don't need a graduate degree, but there are some basics. I mean, do you want to get closer to Jesus? Do, do you, you know, are you willing to say yes to his invitation? And even if you're not fully sure what's going on, are you willing to come and say, Jesus, would you teach me who you are? I want to know more. But if none of that's present, if you really are not interested, like somebody drug me here, buddy, I just, you know, I heard the coffee's good, please. That's okay. If you, if you aren't saying yes to Jesus as you come, then, then actually it's not a meal for you, but I don't mean that in an exclusive sense. It's not that you're excluded. Nobody's going to tackle you there in the middle of the, you know, aisle but rather it's an invitation to consider the invitation and if you're hearing the invitation from jesus and you want to respond by discovering more by by saying yes to him taking the meal as it was intended then you are welcome to come number nine is somewhere in the middle and that is we can't have any doubts no doubt about it that guy had some doubts after he jumped i think it's something you've got to be fully committed to. You've got to be all in. You've got to know exactly what's going on. Yeah, maybe not exactly, but you've got to be without a doubt. Like, I've got full faith and I'm in. Well, the truth is, very few of us live life like that. 
we have our own faith struggles. We have our own doubts. We're, we're asking questions about what's going on. I think the best example of what it's often like, it can be caught in the words of another man who came to Jesus for help. And, and Jesus asked him, he said, do you believe? And how did the guy respond? He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So listen, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And for lots of us, that's exactly what's going on in our lives. You know, we, we, we pray that kind of prayer because we recognize on certain days we're like three-tenths faith and doubt. Or we're struggling with some aspect of who God is. Or we're wondering about the reality of our own faith. But we can come to Jesus. We can come to communion. We can say, Jesus, I do believe, but man, I am struggling. Would you help me believe more? Would you help me with my unbelief? Would you help me with the places that I'm struggling, where I'm doubting, where I'm wrestling? Jesus hears and responds to that kind of honest prayer. Well, number 10, and that's the idea that communion is my way or the highway. I hope no one's offended by that picture. I liked it a lot. <laughs> Tanil thought I shouldn't show it. For those in the podcast, it's the queen with a gun. Anyway, this idea is that we are the only people who do it correctly. Like, Communion's got to be done our way or it's not done properly. And you'll hear debate over the best way to participate in communion. Like baptism, as well as even worship styles and prayer practices and many other realities in the Christian life, how something's done can vary widely based upon culture, upon tradition, upon interpretation, and even the context in which it occurs. And when it comes to communion, it's really no different. What's being eaten? How it's being taken? Is it in a single cup? Do we all drink from that cup? Or do we dip our bread in it like we do here? Or do we go with the little shot glasses, which is kind of fun? Or or do we use real wine or juice? What's with gluten-free? Is that real bread? Or should it be flatbread? What should we do? Oh, should it be handed to you by a priest? Or is it okay if a lay lay member, uh, just a regular dude that loves Jesus, hands it to you? Is that all right? There's a lot of different practices. And they all function within the body of Christ. And the diversity of practices, I think, like baptism, they all point toward our common, unified, shared faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the point. How we receive communion doesn't matter nearly as much. Who we are celebrating in communion matters immensely. Well, those are some of the most common myths and misconceptions regarding communion. But what exactly is communion as we now move toward communion? Communion is, wait for it, all about communion. That is, it's all about being together. It's all about being in relationship. Communion in the in classic sense about sharing intimately. It's sharing easily with those that we love and And this sacred table of communion, it captures in some way everything that we believe and declare about what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are up to. Where we're focusing on, we're we're making known, we're we're, we're trusting in what God has done, what He is doing, and what He will do through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, not only in our lives, but for the sake of the whole world. I'm going to take our cues as we finish today from the most commonly read passage on communion relayed to us by the Apostle Paul immediately following that passage that we read. You're going to hear it again when Dana and Jack lead us in communion. But here it is. 
from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to arrange just a few thoughts of what communion is under the banner of faith, hope, and love. First, as a family, communion is an act of faith. You can see it even here in this passage, but of course if you broaden it out, you see it everywhere. This idea that this has been passed on, it's something that has come to us, part of our faith and our history, our trust and what we believe. We're called to do this in remembrance of Christ, in celebration of him. We're to proclaim the Lord's death. We receive communion as a way of pointing back to what Jesus has done for us. That in itself is an act of faith, and we do that with gratitude. It's also an expression not only that we trust in Jesus, but it actually says something about what we, what we believe about Jesus, our, our collective faith, that, that he is God's one and only son, that he's fully God, fully human, that he became one of us so that we could be restored to relationship with God and with each other. And that's why we often read in our communion liturgy, and we will again today, we recite the Apostles' Creed. It's the faith that's been handed down to us, that Christians have been repeating for centuries and centuries. It's our shared, unified faith that we trust in the Jesus that we declare in our faith. So communion is an act of faith. As a family, communion is also a proclamation of hope. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we receive communion, we're actually saying what God has promised to do, what he did in Jesus, what he is doing in our lives, what he has promised to do in the future, he will do. He is committed to it. In the face of evil, in the face of overwhelming struggle, in the face of despair, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the hope that God has promised he will restore and renew all of creation. He will raise us again in the end. So we proclaim in hope. It reaches forward uh, to this biggest goal, you could say, of all creation, of all of history, of the whole story of Scripture, the biggest goal that God will restore, will heal, will unite all things under Christ. And then as a family, communion is an expression of love. We've talked a lot about that already today. The reality is this command is given to us as a community. The you is plural. The larger context is that we gather together as the new family of God in Christ. And we receive communion as an expression of our current communion with God and each other. That while we still look forward to a fuller reality, we are experiencing something real here today. This is the context of us being in the first family. This is us eating and drinking at the family table with Jesus today. And so... As a family, communion is an act of faith, hope, and love. And I pray today, as you come to the table, led by Jack and and Dana, that you would come, hearing all that we've heard, coming to say yes to Jesus, to receive what he has for us. I'm just going to pray as Dana and Jack come to lead us. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we transition now to participate in the thing we've been talking about, that you would lead us by your spirit to receive all that you have for us. Amen.